Well, I found, I found myself recently thinking about June. Uh, June is a great month in, in my mind. It's kind, of like, uh, it's kind of like the promised land when you're in winter for me, because it's like the kickoff of like maybe the 14 weeks where we get to pretend we live in a nice part of the world where the weather's good. And, and so it's like, it's, but it's also, it's, it's my birthday month, so that makes me happy too. And I was thinking about it particularly this week, because this June is going to be my 40th birthday. And that cued a particular memory in my mind. I remember when my mom turned 40, and I remember at the time as a child, she was telling me she was turning 40, and I remember thinking, I can't believe it's happening to me. My mom is going to die. Um, she, is, she is now, I think people die when they're 40. I think that's what happens. As a child, this was just like what went on, and this is the internal dialogue I'm having in my mind. Thankfully, she's not dead. We thank the Lord for that. I was wrong, but I have discovered as I come closer to 40 that it does feel like death is creeping. Um, I woke up this morning and stepped out of bed, and my, my ankles were like, hey, uh, this doesn't feel good, you know, and, and so I was having a conversation with some of my friends this week about aging and the different experiences of aging, and it's not so much what we experience, what we feel now, but what we kind of extrapolate, wait a second, if it's like this now as I approach 40, I've still got like, you know, Lord willing, in Canada, like half my life to go, and it's all, is it all downhill from here? Trying to, trying to figure out, because in my mind, when I was younger, I pictured, when I did picture old age, it, it was like, it's going to be so nice, and I'm going to be relaxed, and there's going to be grandkids, and I'm going to get to take naps, and it's going to be, and now you start, is this going to mean like a hip replacement? Um, you know, is this, is, and, and you start to go down the list and you, and, you, and you realize, all joking aside, aging carries with it all kinds of creeping sorrow. There are joys, and there are some who enter into old age, and it seems like uh, you can have a Psalm 73 experience, right? Where it's like, I look at them and they're getting old, but nothing bad ever happens. It seems like their bodies keep working, their mind keeps working, their families are happy. And then for other people, old age looks like spending a lot of time alone in a long-term care home. And you start to realize not, not every experience of old age is the same. Not all old age is created equal. But it all leads to the same place, right? It, it all ultimately does end in death. Regardless of your experience of it, at some point, what you do experience of the creeping of old age is God's gracious reminder that your body is moving towards a day when it will give up and you will meet your maker. Jesus, in, in Matthew chapter 16, is not talking about aging, but he is talking about unbelief. And he's addressing two different crowds. He's addressing the Pharisees and Sadducees on the one hand and his disciples on the other. And what Jesus is saying to them, to all of them, is beware unbelief. While the experience of unbelief may vary, the end of it is ultimately the same. Unbelief leads to death. And that's what Jesus is telling his disciples to watch out for. He gets frustrated at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and he walks away from them. He leaves. This is the last big geographical movement away from a Jewish region because of the rejection of the gospel in Matthew. They are rejecting him, so he turns around and walks away, but that causes him to turn around and warn his disciples, don't you do the same thing. And as we see, as Jesus addresses both the Pharisees and the Sadducees and then his disciples, not all unbelief is created equal. It's not all the same, but all of it is to be feared and turned away from. 
So what we want to do as we look at Matthew 16 is understand this. What are the two types of unbelief that Jesus is addressing as he looks at these two particular crowds? The first type of unbelief is this. It is a determined unbelief. A determined unbelief that says, I will not see, I will not get it, I will not believe. And the appropriate word, the appropriate call to action for this category of person is stop closing your eyes. Stop blinding yourself, stop looking away, stop ignoring what's right in front of your face. The problem here for these people is not so much that their eyes are closed. It's not like, oh, I don't know how that happened, I didn't see it, I must have missed it. It's that they're closing their eyes. Look at, look at how it plays out. Again, in verse 1, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and, te- and to test him. So they're trying to prove their own unbelief by getting Jesus to not measure up to the standards that they've artificially set for him. To test him, they asked him to show us a sign from heaven. But he answered them, when it's evening, you say it'll be fair weather for the sky is red. In the morning, it'll be stormy because the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. You catch their problem? It's not that their eyes don't work. They can look at the sky. It's not that their brains don't work. They can reason out what this means. The problem is that they are intentionally blinding themselves to the signs that are right in front of them, the signs of the times, the proof that the kingdom of heaven has come in the person of Jesus, is coming through the person and work and mission of Jesus and his disciples. They are blinding themselves to this reality. Why? Why are they doing this? Jesus says why. He says, your, your, your problem is not just an eye problem. Your problem is a heart problem. It's an evil and adulterous generation that seeks for a sign. You're seeking for a sign, or so you say, because you can't see what's plain to see, and you can't see it because you don't want to see it. You're, you're adulterous. You, you are a generation of people who, in your hearts, have gone away from God. You've pursued gods of your own making, a life that you want, a way of living that you want, and that has blinded you to the reality of who Christ is. It's this blinding, this closing of their eyes. It might be conscious, or it might be not, but it seems like it is rooted in a sense that they already understand the implications of the gospel. The implications of the message If Jesus is king, that's going to change things. And I don't want things to change, so therefore I'm going to try to prove to myself that Jesus is not king. Sometimes we reason that through consciously, sometimes not. Sometimes we immediately go there. So I found this really interesting. Increasingly, as I talk to young people, and even in our neighborhood, as young as 10, 12, 14 years old, and you talk to them about the gospel, you could just be talking about what Jesus did on the cross. And immediately, you know where their mind goes is they start asking questions. Well, what does that mean about the LGBTQ plus community? Well, what does the Bible say about women and the roles of women and women's causes? What does the Bible say about social justice and race? 
Because intuitively, even children understand if this claim is correct, that Jesus is king, that means he goes on the throne and not me. And if the result of him being on the throne is some kind of social or political ramification that I don't like, then Jesus can't be king no matter the proof. The problem's not with the proof, the problem's with the ramifications. And so they blind their eyes to the truth. That's what Jesus is addressing here. These people have a lot to lose if Jesus is king. They don't want him on the throne because they've, who, who are they? The Pharisees, again, they're, they're the, some religious leaders of Jesus' day. They wear the nice robe. They make the prayers in public. They're the honored guests at people's houses, all these kinds of things. They're esteemed in the community. The Sadducees, are the, they're the bigwigs. They're the ones with the political connections. They're related to the, the house and the family of the chief priest in Jerusalem. That's why Jesus is so frustrated because, again, it's another delegation of the authorities from Jerusalem that are rejecting the message of the king of the Jews. So these people, for them to accept the message that Jesus is king, will have ramifications for their life that they don't like. They don't want to get off the throne. I wonder how many of you that describes. The message of Jesus, the message of the gospel, bounces off. It doesn't sink in. It doesn't resonate. It doesn't take root because you don't want to get off a throne. Maybe the throne is the throne of morality, determining what's right and wrong. I, I, don't, I don't want a king on the throne telling me what I can and can't be entertained with. Maybe it's more to do with your friends. I don't want a, I don't want a king on a throne who's going to tell me what type of people I should become close friends with, or even more personally, but I love him or I love her, and I know she's not a Christian, I know he's not a Christian, but I'm sure I can make it work, and you don't want Jesus on the throne dictating what your relationships are going to look like. Maybe it's just, maybe it's just your future. You like living in a, in a way where you conceive of you sitting on the throne of your future. You're calling the shots. You're making the decisions. Like somehow if you just make the right decisions, your life is going to work out the way that you want. And acknowledging that this God actually is sovereign, that this Christ actually is king, might mean that he throws your planned future into chaos. You don't want him on that throne. Because you're in love with those things, you have a heart problem that gives you eye problems so you can't see. You pretend like there's not proof. And, and here's how Jesus interacts with these people. He walks away. He's got nothing left to prove. He's shown you what his kingdom is like. He's shown you his mercy, his kindness, his compassion, his love, his justice, his truth. He's shown you his power, his authority. He's shown you that all things are under his feet. And yet, you are acting like he still has something to prove for you. Jesus would say to you this, this afternoon, stop closing your eyes. In fact, Jesus actually does have one more sign. 
It's interesting. He says no sign will be given to this generation except one. It's a sign of Jonah. Do you remember the story of Jonah? Jonah, who was a prophet, who was trying to run away from God, and then he, was, he had to be thrown overboard because of a storm that the Lord brought on the sea, the boat he was trying to run away from God in. He's thrown overboard into the raging waters. He was swallowed up by the waters of judgment and wrath. He was swallowed up by a great big fish, and he was a day, two days, and on the third day, that fish vomited him up, up onto land where he was like, okay, I get it, and then accepted the lordship of God and went and took the message to the people of Nineveh so that they received what happened to Jonah as a sign and even those wicked pagans, that adulterous generation in Nineveh turned and repented and believed in God. Jesus says, I'll give you the sign of Jonah. This, this is incredible. Stop and consider. Jesus is speaking to people who are still demanding signs just like days after he fed thousands of people with a few loaves of bread. How frustrated would you be But Jesus in his mercy still says there's one sign yet and let me tell you what it is. I myself will be swallowed up by the judgment and the wrath of God. I will be swallowed up not by a whale but by a tomb. And on the third day it's not going to vomit me up. It's not going to have a chance. It can't touch me. I'm going to walk right out of that tomb resurrected on the third day because I have power not just over death but over hell So that even those who have shut their eyes until now will have one more chance. Look and see. If you're like, God's got to prove it to me. I need to see a sign from heaven. Jesus has given you one. He suffered in the place of sinners and he rose on the third day to prove that his message is true. His kingdom is coming and there is life and there is hope found in the name of Christ alone. Stop closing your eyes to what is patently obvious. This is a determined unbelief that Jesus is addressing. But there's a second type of unbelief. As Jesus now moves on to talk to his disciples, here's the second type of unbelief. It is a distracted unbelief. Just distracted unbelief. And so the word of admonition to this group, to the disciples, Jesus is going to say, start opening your eyes. Start opening your eyes to what is obvious, what you should already be seeing uh, I had an experience a couple weeks ago where, um, d- don't worry, this isn't graphic at all. I was in the shower and um, I, I, I wanted to shampoo because that's what normal people do in the shower. So I grabbed my shampoo and I tried to squeeze it and nothing was coming out. Like I got, like, and I'm squeezing harder and harder and I'm shaking it and I'm trying to figure and and in my mind I'm trying to figure out like what is like what could have gone wrong like is it frozen somehow in my shower like I don't know how this is why this is anyway I got a little bit and I'll just roll with it got the body wash and the same thing happened it's like something's happened to my bottles I don't know what's going on some kind of scientific thing I cannot make heads or tails of it whatever close it finish my shower use some girly smelling stuff I don't know I smelled good for the rest of the day I guess and out I went and didn't think anything else of it I was confused in the moment didn't think anything else of it. That night as I'm going to bed, my lovely, innocent, precious, dear wife says, hey, how was your shower today? I still wasn't able to make any connections. I was like, oh, it was fine. And I was like, actually, it was really weird. Something was was wrong with my shampoo. And she started laughing. 
And it turns out that she just decided randomly to prank me. She had taken like saran wrap and put it all over and like in so that I couldn't get anything out of the thing. And she thought this is going to be just a joke. Ah ha ha, he's, he's going to, and then like he's going to figure it out. But I was, this was so far off my radar of anything that my wife would ever do to me. It never even crossed my mind. I needed to open up my eyes to the fact that my wife is funny. She said, that was a funny trick. I'm going to figure out how to pay it back. It was so funny. It was right there for me to see. I just didn't open my eyes to see it. Somehow it was more reasonable for me to think that my shampoo froze in our house than that someone was pranking me. We need to open our eyes to what Jesus is saying intentionally, deliberately, carefully. Are you, are you listening? Are you seeing? Look at what Jesus says to his disciples in verse 5. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I, I love this. Jesus is like, he's, he's showing what's on his heart. He's so jacked up. Can you believe these guys don't even believe me still? Like, man, this is where his mind is. He's still like, you know, you have a conversation and it works you, so you're thinking about it. This is what Jesus is thinking about. But look at what the disciples are thinking about. They're thinking about something totally different. They began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. That's what they're thinking about. I'm kind of hungry. How does this keep happening? Everywhere they go, and Jesus is like, how much bread do we have? They never have enough to feed themselves. So maybe that's why this is such a big deal for them. They're like, how did this happen again? They brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, oh, you of little faith. So when Jesus starts out a sentence to you that way, you know there's a correction coming. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not yet remember? And he recounts for them. How many loaves How many, how many loaves did we have? How many baskets did we pick up when there was 5,000? What about when there was 4,000? Do you guys not yet get it? Do you not see? How is it, verse 11, that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? I'm not talking about bread, guys. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's like, uh, it's, it's a bit of a funny scene. There's two conversations happening at the same time. Disciples are talking about what what's on their heart. Jesus is talking about what's on his heart. It kind of seems like they're talking past each other until Jesus reigns them in. Guys, do you not realize if you're on mission with the king, we're not going to run out of bread. Like if this is the kingdom of heaven coming to earth, these things will be taken care of. You don't need to worry. What I'm worried about is unbelief that I see out there. And frankly, now I'm seeing it in you as well. They need to beware of distracted Unbelief. Jesus says, beware of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, this is a really interesting statement for him to make for a number of reasons. If you were a first century Jew, you would know this. The Pharisees and the Sadducees don't necessarily get along. They're not chums. The, the Pharisees and the Sadducees have different moral teaching. They exist in different stratas of society. They have different beliefs about the afterlife, about spirits, about demons, about all kinds of different things. Theologically, these are like Calvinists and Arminians kind of like hanging out together. It's like, whoa, what's going on? Something, something must have gone wrong for these two groups to be hanging out together. Why are the Pharisees and the Sadducees together? Well, because they hate Jesus and they're trying to prove him wrong. But what then could Jesus mean when he says the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Because they have different teaching. 
What he's getting at is he's warning against unbelief and relating it to their teaching is he's warning them to beware of any teaching that is insidious, like, like leaven. It gets into your heart and spreads throughout. It has effects in every part of your belief system. It tends toward unbelief. Beware of teaching that leads towards a hard heart that does not believe. Now, why would they need to be warned of this? If anything, since chapter 13, when Jesus was telling the parables, the disciples seem like they're growing in their understanding. They seem like they're growing in their awareness. Why is it that Jesus would need to warn them? They're not like the Pharisees and the Sadducees demanding signs. What is Jesus warning them about? A distracted unbelief. So sometimes what turns our hearts cold to Christ are the most innocuous things, sometimes even positive things, good things, that becomes great things or ultimate things. John Piper puts it this way in in A Hunger for God. He's talking about our perception, our awareness of God. Here he uses the language of hunger for God. He says this, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It's not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it's a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. How does this work? Well, what we're experiencing right now at church is a gift. So let's reflect on it for a moment. When you walked in here today, what was it that you saw? What was it that you experienced? Maybe, coming from the Latvian center to here, you noticed how comfortable the chairs are, how nice the stage is, how nice the lights are, how nice the sound is. There might be any number of different things that you noticed. Maybe you missed all that because you came with your family. And your wife or your husband was a jerk today. And you're just thinking about that. Maybe your kids are not behaving. They're running around. They're taking their mask off. They're not behaving COVID protocols. They hugged someone. Maybe... You noticed where people are sitting and you thought, oh, I don't want to sit near them. Or maybe you saw someone, a particular person, thought, I do want to sit near them. These are the things that are on your mind as you enter the room. But do you know what you're missing? Every soul around you is a miracle of God's grace. A demonstration of the power of the living God. Someone created in the image and likeness of God and redeemed by the blood of Jesus and made into a new creation. Each one of them uniquely reflecting the stamp of the creator who you love. You could see more of God if you look carefully at his miraculous work at the people around you. Or maybe you just take a step back and look at the gathering of the whole 
the temple of the living God. Are you aware as you walk in on a Sunday, Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, here in Toronto, doesn't matter where, where God's people are gathered, what you see right now, if you have eyes to see, is the temple of the living God. The spirit of God moved into this space to dwell in our midst when you walked in. Do you have eyes to see it? This is a miraculous provision of the marvelous providence of our sovereign God that in the midst of a pandemic, we are gathered together to worship our God. Do you see it? Or are you distracted by all the other things? See, and Jesus needs to warn us of this because the cumulative effect of week after week of not seeing God's grace active around you in the church not hearing God's grace from his word, not singing God's grace and hearing your own voice declare it in song is a creeping, it's a deadening, it's a hardening of the heart. A distracted and unaware unbelief that takes over. It's the reality that the matters of earth can blind us to the miracles of heaven and it creates hard-hearted unbelief whether we're doing it on purpose or not. Here's what the author to Hebrews writes. He he writes something similar. In Hebrews chapter 3, he wants to wake the people up. He wants to strengthen them. He wants them being alive again, enlivened by the grace of God. So he writes this in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12. He says, Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So it's not like you set out to, to disbelieve. But this creeping unbelief, this hardening may come. Verse 13, he says, exhort one another. This is why it's so important that we gather with other believers because this creeping unbelief can happen in all of our hearts. So we need to exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. That, here's why, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if Indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Let me ask you a question. If you go back in your mind, for those of you who, who know the scriptures, you, you know the story of the Exodus. And we say, think about hardening of hearts. Whose heart immediately comes to mind? Who immediately comes to mind? It's Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh who plague after plague after plague deliberately hardened his heart against God. But there was another group of people that hardened their hearts. They were distracted. There was a distracted unbelief that comes. And this is what the author of Hebrews is addressing. So in verse 16, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? It wasn't Pharaoh. Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked? With whom was God provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see that that they were unable to enter because of un. There's a creeping, hardening, deadening unbelief that comes into our life without us even knowing. 
And this is what Jesus is warning us against. The people that left Egypt, the Israelites, they left. And what were they concerned with? They were concerned with bread and meat and water. These are not illegitimate things. But they took good things and they made them ultimate things. And their hearts were hardened to what God was doing. And they gave themselves over to unbelief. It's so possible right now. It's possible anytime. It's so possible right now in the midst of all that we are going through as a society, as families, as a church, that you, in your distraction, find your heart becoming numb to the truths of the gospel. Not because you want to disbelieve, but because you're distracted. Even as Christians, right? There's so many good causes. And, not, and when I say good, I don't, I don't mean like they're because of good things. I mean things like there's Bill C-6, there's Bill C-7. There's all these things that we need to oppose. And when they pass, that we need to mourn and we need to continue to speak up against. There's causes like the Pregnancy Care Center. We want to get involved with that. For all the good or the ill of it, there's Black Lives Matter and all the associated things that go along with that, a rising concern for justice that in our hearts, we, we should at the very least agree that we long for a more just society, we can get caught up either for or against any one of these things. Then there's just everything to do with COVID. COVID becomes this all-consuming thing that I dare you to try to have one conversation with someone today that does not involve the word COVID. We don't know how to talk to each other anymore without talking about either COVID or the government or what the response is. Listen, we are in danger of becoming so distracted by all these good and important conversations that we miss the ultimate thing. And it results in a creeping, hardening, deadening of our hearts. It might, it might, not, it might not be some exciting cause like any of those. It might just, for you, I found this in my own life, it might just be you just get stuck in the doldrums during COVID. One day becomes the next day, becomes the next day, you're home, and then at night, you're home, and then the next day, you're home, and then, hey, I'm going to see my family, and the next day, hey, I'm going to see my family, and, then, and the conversations are the same, the setting is the same, there's nothing new. So nothing's exciting, nothing engages the heart. It's just this constant deadening and hardening of the heart to ultimate things. It's the problem with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It, it, was, a, it was a determined unbelief. I think for most of us, we're more like the disciples. What we need to be warned of today is a distracted unbelief. Are we pursuing Christ? Are we laboring for his kingdom? Are we seeking first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness with all that we have and trusting that the rest will be provided for us like Jesus instructed his disciples in Matthew chapter six? Jesus' admonition to you then is to start opening your eyes. The disciples needed to be reminded of what Christ had done. Didn't I feed the 5,000? Didn't I feed the 4,000? then why do you doubt? Why do you lack faith? Why is your heart growing cold? We, friends, we need to be reminded of what Christ has done. So much more than feeding thousands, he died in our place. He bore the wrath of God and he rose on the third day. 
He started building his kingdom thousands of years ago, and it is still being built today. His promise that he made to us in in these chapters of Matthew's gospel to build his church is still being fulfilled around us right now for those who have eyes to see. Are you reminded freshly of what Christ has done for you? Are you seeing it? Are you focusing on it? Are you delighting in it in your own life in a way that softens and enlivens? and excites your heart. Jesus says, beware of distracted unbelief. Have you not seen what Jesus has done for you? Have you not seen how he's provided for his church? Have you not seen the power of the spirit at work in you and in those around you? And oh, you of little faith, beware. Do not doubt, but believe. We all will experience old age one way or another. And at times in our life and seasons in our life, we will likewise experience unbelief. Sometimes a determined hardening, sometimes a distracted hardening. Friends, we need to be deliberate. You need to be deliberate this morning. Stop closing your eyes to what's patently true. Open them, awake, and look and see what God has done for you in Christ. And believe again. Let's pray.